check out his friend and, and oh, knocks on the door, opens it up, and steps inside, and there's 18 children running around screaming. And he says, wow, this is amazing. Where's your husband? And she said he went to Rome to blow out the candle. Yeah. You know, I thought about that joke, very Catholic joke, of course. Um, and I'm not saying that this is what the Catholics believe, but just like any tradition, our tradition can sometimes supplant what is true, can it not? And I, I, most of you are aware of Catholics. You may have some friends, and they light candles. But in this particular story, and I chose not to change it, the only thing that brought effect or change was lighting a candle, not praying. And I had to read through that joke again because I was tempted to substitute and put in their prayer, but I'm, I chose not to for this reason. Because many times in our praying, we can become weary and even come to a conclusion that somehow prayer is not enough. And we can begin to substitute activity, things in our life for prayer or somehow believe that prayer is not, prayer is not powerful. Prayer truly is not effective. I've got to do something else. I've got to do something more or even substitute prayer for something else. I remember when I was a kid. I was in junior high, I was a runner, track guy, and, and a wrestler, okay? And I can distinctly remember, I had to walk to school, you know, 20 miles in the snow, as they say. No, it was only a mile. And I can remember as I would walk to school, and I'd, I was very religious as a, a, a teenager, a young teenager, and on my way to school, I would pray, but here's what I found myself doing, no lie. On my way to school, and I walked over a lot of sidewalk, I purposely chose not to step on the crack. Now, you understand why. Break your, thank you, yes. And how superstitious. And yet I felt like, well, you know, I'm going to pray, but while I'm praying, I've got to make sure I'm wearing, my, I'm wearing my lucky socks. Great, I remembered. I'm, I'm going to make sure I don't step on the cracks. And the truth is, I had zero faith for prayer. That prayer would somehow bring something effectual to pass in my life. And here's the truth. That is where many of us are at in our relationship with God. And we've become weary and we've been praying for something so much, so long. And we have not seen the answer. And truthfully, we have become weary and we have allowed stuff, things in our life to supplant prayer. Can I ask you, do you still pray fervently and passionately? Or have you allowed a weariness in your heart to supplant prayer? Weariness is one of the points that I want us to look at this morning. But the focus is prayer. And actually, the title of the sermon is Fruitless Prayer. But I'm going to come back to this sense of weariness because that's actually secondary to the text. <laughs> I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. But the second thing, and this is what the text really brings out, and that is that our prayer life reflects the condition of our heart. Our prayer life reflects the condition of our heart, and according to the text, the heart of Israel had grown cold and truly disconnected with God. Now this is a sign that we're going to see of an unregenerated heart. And I'm not saying that that's where you are at this morning. Weariness in prayer is different. But our prayer life reflects what's going on in here. And for the Jews, the prayer life was like next to zero or just very outwardly religious. And it reflected an unregenerated heart. A generation of people that had lost connection with God. And it was for this reason that they rejected Jesus. Now, here's something you're going to notice about prayer. Prayer is like stepping into the light. When you step into the light, it reveals what? The darkness. People do not step into the light, John 
for fear of the darkness that their wicked deeds would be exposed. And we're going to see the heart of Israel, of that generation of Israel in our text today. I'm going to be going through the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be going through Passion Week and just looking at a, a, several snapshots of Jesus' past, Passion Week meaning his suffering. <clears throat> and that week, beginning Sunday, all the way through the resurrection, reveals so much. Obviously, in a couple weeks, we have Resurrection Sunday. Next week is Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's where I want to begin. Right there. Jesus, in fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, that he would be riding on a donkey, bringing salvation. And he would be riding as a king into Jerusalem. Now, as you remember the story, I'm not going to read it today, but as you remember the story, you will also remember that as he rides into Jerusalem, people are or approaching Jerusalem, people are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are shouting praises to him for all the miracles that they had seen. But on the other hand, we have the Pharisees, religious leaders of the day, and they reveal something very different in their view of Jesus. As a matter of fact, they tell Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. Tell them to close their mouths. Do you not realize what they're doing? And Jesus' response to them was, if they were to keep silent, even the rocks would cry out out of the mouths of babes. And Jesus, as he's doing this, now this is the interesting, the, the incredible thing. Jesus did not come to bring peace but a sword. You remember that passage. You know, when Jesus becomes the topic of conversation, usually, like in a workplace, people are, are divided on it. And that's what Jesus meant, bringing a sword. Even within a family, there's division. And on that particular Sunday morning, we see a division amongst the people. Some are wanting to praise him for all the miracles they've seen, and yet the, the very religious Pharisees are saying, Jesus, in essence, don't you realize this is blasphemy? Tell them to stop this. Next scene, Jesus, as he's riding on the donkey, he's descending the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and about to rise up onto Mount Zion, where the city of David or Jerusalem is, and in one section, the temple, which is where he is heading. And as he descends the Mount of Olives, Luke records that he begins to weep. It says, and he, as, he, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This is on the heels of people praising him for all that they had seen. And he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And Jesus connects this time in which the Messiah, the Christ, came to Jerusalem as king, riding humbly on a donkey. And the bottom line is, they rejected him. They showed that on Good Friday. They crucified him. They had a choice, Barabbas, set Barabbas free, or you know, kill, kill Barabbas or kill Jesus. Set one of them free, and they chose to set Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, free, and have Jesus killed. That was the temperature of the people of Israel in that generation. Jesus knew what their heart was, and it's for this reason he wept, knowing that within 40 years, actually, more than likely, 40 years to that day, because in 70 AD, Passover celebration, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, 
set the temple on fire. The, the gold in the temple melted down into the crevices of the stone. And so when the Romans came into the temple, they pulled up all of the stones, completely leveled the temple to get the gold out of the stone. Jesus' word was fulfilled. But he directly connected this judgment of God upon the people of Israel for how they rejected the Christ. We now segue into our story here in Mark 11. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we pick up the story in Mark 11, verse 11. And it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, I imagine immediately after this act, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And so we see that as Jesus approaches Jerusalem on the donkey, he makes his way towards the temple. And it's as if when he gets to the temple mount and he looks around and he assesses what's going on there, the buying and selling. Actually, what would happen is as these tables, these money changers tables were set up, they would take your foreign currency, understand that it was the Passover. By the way, in 70, 80, 40 years later, Josephus tells us that when Jerusalem was ransacked, he says that 1.1 million people were in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if the city could actually hold that many. Many speculate that that included the numbers of people around the city. But that's how many, he says, had converged on the city during that time. So a lot of people here. Coming from different countries, Jews wanting to celebrate the Passover. They bring their foreign currency. They exchange it for the currency of Israel. And they use that to buy their sacrifices so that they're able to fulfill their religious duties. And apparently there was a lot of corruption in this money changing business. And they were making money hand over fist, taking advantage of the religious holiday. As Jesus looks around at what's going on, he realizes this is going to take some time to deal with, not today. And he leaves. He goes to Bethany Sunday night. That's where he had been staying up to that point. And then the next morning, on his way to Jerusalem, he comes across a fig tree. And there's no fruit on the fig tree, and so he curses it. And Many people have stepped back, I have to admit, including myself, and said, what is going on here? Even to the point where skeptics have commonly used this particular story to demonstrate, see, Jesus is merely a human, and he is led by his emotions, and here's an example of when Jesus sins. 
Why would any level-headed man see a tree, and it's not even the season for figs, and coming to the tree, being so selfish, wanting figs, finding none for a really good reason, and cursing it? There's a few screws loose in Jesus' head. He's a few fries short of a Happy Meal. There is a problem here, and obviously Jesus is not who the Christians think he is. Now, F.F. Bruce who uh, has passed away. He was uh, an, an excellent theologian in many respects, and he tackled this, he researched it, and uh, it was probably more through him than anyone else that this information came to light. And whenever I tra- tra- trace this information back, it always seems to come back to F.F. Bruce. You may even have a little footnote in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, that refers to this. But here's what Jesus was actually wanting to find. He was not wanting or even expecting to find figs because there is a certain type of fig tree that produces what is commonly called taksh, T-A-Q-S-H. Taksh is just a, a very small fruit that grows only on the branches that grew the year before, and it grows right where the figs had grown. And they're not as tasty as the figs, but they're still fruit. They are not figs. But if there are no touch on the fig tree, it is a clear sign that will bear no fruit when the season for figs comes. So now do you understand this? Jesus is not looking for figs, and since there were no figs, he gets all angry and curses it, and it troubles and dies. That's not the case. Jesus was expecting the touch, because if he found the touch, he would realize this fig tree will bear many figs. He found none. You typically find them when the leaves are out, but before the figs come. You find them during Passover week. Finding none, Jesus does something very unusual. He doesn't do this to any other fig tree or any other plant that we know of, but he curses it. And we have to step back and we have to ask Jesus, why Why do you want to curse this poor little fig tree? We need to realize the reason for this. When we realize it, the whole story that I've read to you comes into focus. There was a parable that Jesus gave a while back. And he says that there was a a vineyard grower and when his, his... The the fig tree did not produce any fruit for three years. He said, just cut it down and we'll plant others. And his servant said, my master, just give it one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it and do everything I can. And and then let's see if next year there's perhaps more, some fruit. And then why why cut it down? He says, okay, one more year. But if after that there's no fruit, it gets cut down. This is obviously a parable that Jesus spoke about the nation of Israel. There was no fruit for three years, which may well coincide with the three years of his ministry, perhaps. And he is ready to level it. There's no fruit. But give it one more year. Now, can I say God didn't just give Israel one more year. He gave it 40, an entire generation, an entire generation. But after that generation, after that 40 years, God looked upon the nation of Israel and he still saw what Jesus saw this day, Monday of Passion Week, no fruit. And he said, it's time to cut it down. It's time for me to bring my judgment. Now, Jesus does what we would call here a prophetic act, cursing the fig tree. Ezekiel was well known for his prophetic acts. He would lay on one side for some number of days to symbolize captivity of Judah, lay on his other side to symbolize the captivity of Israel. Um, He created a map of Jerusalem and laid siege against it, just like we did with our little green army men when we were little boys. Remember that, guys? Um, I don't think he had uh, firecrackers or things to blow up the army men. But anyway, this... He creates this map, lays siege to it, and he says, even so, I will have Nebuchadnezzar lay siege 
to Jerusalem and destroy it. 586 AD, that was fulfilled. That's a prophetic act. Jesus performs a prophetic act. The very next day, when they come back to that fig tree, what has happened to it? Withered, shriveled up to the roots. Yeah, that tree will never bear fruit. It's now completely dead. What is Jesus prophesying? We see that prophetic act taught us in the very next story of the cleansing of the temple. Jesus walks in, as I've mentioned, he sees the money changers, he understands what's going on there, he saw it the day before, no doubt, assessed it, I got to do something about this. Jesus then takes a whip, he clears the temple, he is hot with anger, righteous anger. Why? Because they have turned the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace to serve their own greedy desires. If you were to look at the Temple Mount, you would see the temple, you would see the altar in front of it, and then a court in front of that, which would be the court of the women. There was a low wall that would surround the, this area that I just described, and outside of that area, a large area to the north and a large area to the south, just a little bit, a corridor perhaps to the east, that was the court of the Gentiles, large area. And Jesus quotes this passage, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Not that they would gather in the court of the Gentiles to pray for the nations, though I, I would certainly hope they did that, but rather, according to Isaiah chapter 2, that the nations would stream to the Mount, to Mount Zion, and that, that nations would gather to worship God. <laughs> and so the temple, the purpose of it was for the nations to come and find salvation in let me now translate it, Christ as Savior of the world, and that there, let me just get to the short of it, that there will be worldwide revival. And as you read through Isaiah chapter 2, you see this incredible revival that sweeps through the earth, and it's that passage where they say they take their, plow, they take their swords and beat them into plowshares. Where there's war and anger and violence, the kingdom of God brings peace, and that this peace would extend to the ends of the earth. And that's a picture that's given to us in Isaiah 2. And this is, Jesus is referring to this idea that the nations would come and that there would be restoration, that there would be a change. But you have totally lost your vision, Jesus, in essence, is rebuking them for. You have turned the court of the Gentiles and somehow you have given up hope because this is the place for people from all nations to pray. And what have you done? You have gotten rid of the prayer, gone by the wayside. And you have allowed the stuff, the greed, the evil desires in your heart to supplant my vision for you as a people. Here's what I'm going to tell you this. Prayer gauges the temperature of the church. I want you to think about that. Prayer gauges the temperature of the church. If the church's heart is cold, prayer or one's prayer life will reveal that. Now, the prayer life of Israel was cold because it was dead. Its prayer life was very religious superstitious, external. We see pictures of this in the Gospels. And for this reason, because there was nothing in here and it was dead, they rejected Jesus. Prayer is like stepping into the light because prayer is relational. 
Prayer isn't just about, okay, I'm writing down all of these prayer requests. Wow, that fills up a whole page. Okay, God, I ask that you would bless my grandfather and my grandmother and that you would provide a job for my friend and that you would come through for this marriage on down the list. And I've done my prayers and I'm done. And, 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 and it can become so mechanical. And many times this can flow from a heart that's cold. Now, can, can I just say that there are times in which we can easily pray that way. But I'm going to challenge you this morning. Prayer is relational. And it is when prayer stops being relational, we become weary in our praying. For the Jews who were walking in darkness, they refused to step into the light. They refused to engage in that intimacy of prayer. And Jesus said, you're dead already. And in essence, he says to Israel, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And 40 years later to the day, Jerusalem is ransacked and destroyed. They say that the Religious sect, the Sadducees, which was very overtly Jewish and religious and external. They believed only in the first five books of the Bible of Moses. Um, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in spirits or angels or demons. Um, they were the high priest and the ruling party of Jesus' day. They were completely obliterated. They, they ceased to exist after 70 AD. And it's as if God said, you know what? I am so tired of this. I'm moving on. I have brought my son. You have rejected him. And now I reject you. And a people who were walking in darkness were destroyed. Jesus knew this. Because there was no fruit in Israel. He knew this because when he walked into the temple, they had gone to the extreme of completely getting rid of prayer and seeking to make money off of the Passover feast. And Jesus, in essence, had said, you're done. You're done. Now, I did say that I was going to start off the sermon talking about that particular aspect of the, the message that reflects an unregenerated heart. And I'm going to imagine that most of you, perhaps all of us here this morning, are regenerated. We've experienced this new birth in Christ. But here is the truth. This still applies to us in, in some respects. As we move on, we're going to see this. But our heart truly has become weary in prayer. And we can feel it. And so... We need to move on, and we need to ask this question, how do I deal with this weariness in prayer? I'm going to suggest this, that if prayer has taken a back seat in your life, if when you pray, it's kind of like, and you roll the die, if prayer has been supplanted in your life, by any number of things. I, I, I realize that I can become pretty passionate about many things, but when I'm pursuing those hobbies, almost anything, you know, the, the typical uh, substitution in our day is the game of golf or watching football. But they, what do they call them? Um, football. Um, wow, my mind just totally went blank on me with that one. Um, football widows. There we go. Yeah, the, the men are watching football in this room that they have spent thousands of dollars with their recliners and, you know, 120-foot TV set and, and, and all, and they're just entertained all day long. And you said that, yeah, their wives are called football. Um, football widows, thank you. We can substitute are following after Christ and here prayer itself with all of these other things. We become so passionate about them. Maybe it's beginning a business. Maybe it is pursuing um, 
having a family and providing for them and doing projects around the house. I love that kind of stuff. But when that begins to supplant my prayer life, I'm going to tell you this. I will become weary in prayer. I will. You will become weary in prayer. What is the remedy? Jesus gives us a very simple answer that if we're not careful, it, it comes across almost trite. It comes across too simple. It's kind of like, yeah, Jesus, that was a nice religious response. Thank you very much. Now let me get on with my life and try to, try to find the real answer. But Jesus' answer is this, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Now, honestly, as I say, it's easy to look at that and say, wow, Jesus, that, is, that just sounds so religious. Come on, really? Faith? Of course I have faith in God. What do you mean that's, that's somehow the answer? Have faith in God. Even to the point, Jesus says, where you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. Now, he was referring to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was right there. Okay, This is when he, they come to the fig tree before they go up to, the, to the, 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 the Temple Mount. The fig tree is somewhere maybe in the Kidron Valley or on the Mount of Olives. But he's referring to that mountain, the Mount of Olives. Be uprooted, cast into the sea. Can I just help us dig into this a little bit more? Because sometimes I think we, we can miss the point when we start talking about faith. We, we believe that faith merely means that something exists, okay? And it is so much more than that. Now, I, I'm not going to preach the sermon I preached many, many months ago about this, but you might remember that faith, first and foremost, is relational. Remember, he doesn't say, believe God. What does he say? He says, believe in God. Have faith in in God. Faith is first and foremost relational. And I'm going to suggest this to you. When you are in prayer, what does your prayer life look like? Does it tend to be that list of all these different things and as you pray through them, you calculate, well, 90% of these I've been praying for a year and none of them have come to pass. Honestly, a weariness can set in. When you're trying to, if you're at work and you're trying to bring change into your workplace for a year and there is no change, do you not become weary? When you are, when you are working with your children and trying to help them uh, change in certain character qualities and there's no change, can you not become weary wondering, why am I even doing this? Why even expend more effort on this? Maybe when you're working with your marriage and it just seems like it only is getting worse. Don't you feel like throwing in the towel? And this is what I'm getting at. A weariness sets in when we are praying for something over and over and over and it doesn't happen. Now you remember my story. I'm not going to get into it too much, but to at, least, at least to say I prayed for 15 years for my brother Rob. There was no change. Can I confess to you, the last five years, I didn't pray for him every day, not even close. Maybe every few months to once a year. That's how weary I had become. My brother, after 15 years, got saved and his life transformed. And one of the things through that the Lord showed me was just how impotent my prayers had become for my brother because my prayer life in, in some respects had been reduced to a list of things that I'm asking for. I'm going to suggest to you this. Remember I said faith is relational. Prayer, therefore, is relational as well. I'm going to say this. When you step into this arena of prayer with faith, the weariness begins to fade away. But you've got to realize that, that when we are saying faith in God, which is relational first and foremost, it is more than just this list or these, this list of all of the things that we are praying for. If that's the sum total of your prayer life, it is no wonder that we have become weary. Because we keep asking and asking and we never get what we want. 
If prayer truly is relational at its core, our prayer life is going to be rich with praise and thanksgiving and constantly reflecting on the things that God has done, many of which we haven't even prayed about. Sarah Joy was in a car accident last Wednesday, still emotional for my wife and I. Um, for my wife even to the point where she basically says, okay, nobody's driving cars until I say so. <laughs> you never know. I understand that. The kids were a little taken about, what? Mom, come on. You need to chill. And I'm, I'm feeling the same anxiety. It's just that I'm not saying it. And wow, and she got T-boned. The car was probably going somewhere between 30 and 45 miles an hour as she was turning left here. Not to get into the details, but when I saw her, I was so grateful that God had spared her life. She had no need to go in an ambulance to a hospital. I was so grateful. This is the attitude that we need to have in prayer. Instead of always, okay, God, keep my children safe, keep them safe. Hey, how about God, thank you for how you have kept my children, my wife, my family safe. Thank you for, thank you, Lord, that the stomach virus is finally gone from my family. Thank you, Lord, for, and just continuing to thank him and praise him and reveal a heart of gratitude because I'm not just focusing on what I haven't gotten. I'm focusing on what God has done. And I'm going to tell you this, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has done plenty in your life. Are you frustrated with your spouse and wondering, when are they ever going to change? How about if you start thanking God, thank you for how you have changed them. Thank you for how they love me. I don't deserve it, and mean that, by the way. I don't deserve it, and yet they love me anyway. God, thank you for how they have sacrificed and start listing the ways in which they, see, when we do this, the focus is off of all the things, God, that I've been asking for that you just haven't given me. I'm sorry, but that is the spoil, spoiled child syndrome in our hearts. And I confess, I go there. But when you do that, a weariness begins to set in. Your relationship with God is all about what you have not received. And you will become weary. Do you want an answer for your weariness then? I, I, I've been there so many times, I can't count them. Go to God in prayer. And focus not on all of those, that list, but focus on this right here, this relationship with God. Have faith in God. Now, here's an interesting thing you're going to find. When you are building this relationship with God in prayer, it, I mean, prayer is conversation, right? I'm not saying that, God, you're going to hear the audible voice of God, but here's what, you, here's what you will find, that the closer you are to him, the more of his heart he begins to share with you in many different ways. I've heard it said that God shares his deepest secrets with his closest friends. If our goal in prayer is to build this connection with God, have faith in God, he will begin to reveal more of his heart. Less of what Mike Curtis wants and more of what God wants. How I am to obey him how I can encourage others, how I can, as a pastor, minister, whereas if I did it in my flesh, it like gets nowhere, been there, done that way too many times. But if God were to show me, then there's going to be a, a resolution. And so when we have faith in God and we're connecting with God, the very next thing, and to me as I'm studying this, I'm being surprised, you can speak to this mountain, be removed, and it will cast itself into the sea. He says, have faith. Let me get to that passage. But don't doubt in your heart, but believe 
that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Now, I don't know about you. I, I found that a little intriguing because it doesn't say pray that the mountain is removed. Do you find that in your version? Pray that the mountain is removed and then God will remove the mountain. Now, I'm not saying that's not the implication that God, I mean, you're not going to remove, anyone here strong enough to remove a mountain? No, I didn't think so. God obviously is going to do that, but it is not something that you just sit there and pray about. He's very clear here. Speak to. Now, we find an example that I find interesting. It's actually throughout the Gospels, but very specifically when Peter visits Tabitha, or her name is also called Dorcas. Dorcas was a widow. She had served the poor for a, a, a long while, and she dies. They send for Peter to come pray for her. When he arrives, she's dead. He goes to her room, closes the door, and the very first thing he does is then he prays. What is he doing there? Because after he prays, he gets up and he says, Tabitha, arise. He doesn't say, Father, in Jesus' name, may you raise her from the dead right now. He may have prayed that in his prayer time, but now he speaks a command, and Tabitha is raised up, healed, resurrected from the dead. What was he doing when he walked into that room and prayed? He was connecting with God, and he was seeking in that relational connection to hear from God. Did God even want her raised from the dead? Obviously, in that prayer connection, the Father spoke clearly, I want to raise her from the dead. And, and there was a story in which the gospel writer says, and there was, when Jesus was ministering, and, there, and the power of God was present to heal. And Jesus began healing. Now, I don't claim to understand the, the, the word of command, but I do know that it happens on the heels of prayer. Peter didn't walk into the room and command Tabitha to arise. He allowed faith to rise up in his heart. And I'm going to suggest in that relational connection in prayer, hear and discern the will of God. And then he spoke. Now, I'm saying this because this concept of speaking to the mountain is used three times in the New Testament. It is the epitome, if you will, of faith. But nowhere in the New Testament do we actually see an example of this. And so for that reason, commentators and, and others, preachers, have suggested this is hyperbole. In other words, this is an exaggeration, not that we should ever speak to a mountain, but he is thinking of what is the hardest thing that you could ever imagine doing, an entire mountain being lifted up and cast into the sea. That would be the hardest. Now, whether God has actually done that in history, and I don't know, I've not read all of history, he certainly could do that if he wanted to. And so that's the point. God can do this. If it's God's will to do it, then speak the command and it will happen. But the heart of that command is faith. It's this walking in connection with God and allowing weariness to be dispelled because it's not all about this list. It is about this relationship with God. As a church, I know that there have been times in the last year in which I have become very weary. And as God has examined my heart, remember, prayer is coming into the light, right? And as God has examined my heart and turned the light on, he has shown that many times that is my prayer life. All of these things, as a pastor, I'm praying for. 
And, and God is, and, and I, I personally have observed and found that when, it's not when I stop doing that, it's just that when I recognize, and that is no longer the sum total of my prayer life, but it's this connection with God and this conversation and this longing to be with him and worship and seeking his face and loving him, that's when the weariness starts dispelling. One of the, the vision of our church, if I were to go around the room, most of you would be able to say this. What is the vision of Powerline? It is to make disciples of all nations. Right? So how are we doing? How are we doing? Let's be honest. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. That we realize, God, we have been evangelizing so much, and yet, God, we have seen little fruit. We've seen some, but little fruit. And for me, I have allowed that to bring discouragement into my heart because that's one of the things. That's not just one. That's like a major thing on this list, and I'm praying for. And God has just had to show me, Mike, I'm not going to ask that you stop praying for that, but can we just connect here right now? Can I just share with you my heart? And it's not just going to be about that. It's going to be about a lot of things. But can I speak to you? And for me, this conversation with God is starting in Psalms and then praying and turning to to another section of Scripture and praying, and it's back and forth between the Word and prayer and just seeking to allow God to fine-tune my heart so that I start praying His prayers. So that my prayer time begins to reflect His heart. And I'm going to tell you that when that happens, that weariness, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I've diagnosed my heart, and it's been sick. And God has had to refresh me. And so I want to invite you, let your heart today be refreshed. Connect with God in this time of prayer and step into the light and allow his light to shine on the darkness and maybe there's been stuff and passions that have led you astray. I'm not talking about passions that are necessarily sin, but not in moderation. They are and they have supplanted this desire in your heart to pursue Jesus and especially in prayer. And I'm at this place right now in which God is refreshing me and trying to encourage trying to encourage me change my attitude in some ways, maybe get my heart right in others and and allow him to just fill me up, overflowing with a sense of his goodness and his grace and his love and all this other stuff that needs to be a part of our prayer life. So I want to ask you, are you weary this morning? When you go to prayer, do you run to prayer or is it like, oh, yeah, I guess. I guess I should pray today. You're weary. I'm going to pray right now. We're about to have communion. You can call the children in. But I want to close in prayer right now. I want the Spirit of God to minister encouragement to you right now. Sorry, we're going to mix metaphors here, but we're going to turn the lights out so that God's light can shine in our hearts. It is just a personal reflection right now for you. If you want to come to the altar, you're more than welcome to do that. If we could kill the lights, Brian, thanks. But church, let's have faith in God, in God. Not like the demons. They believe God exists. They have no relationship with him whatsoever. Let's connect with him. Thank him. Tell him how much you love him. Tell him how much he means to you. Thank him for all the things that he has done for you. As I say, you can come to the altar. You can bend your knee at your your seat there in the sanctuary. Spirit of God, I ask you, Lord, we're about to take communion. 
that would reflect our communion with you. But God, the truth is that communion with you has been strained at the altars of prayer. And we have become weary. And we acknowledge this this morning. And Father, it, for some of us it has gone so deep we almost feel paralyzed. Father, first, I pray for those that have, uh, they have actually substituted the stuff of the world for prayer, and it is only indicative of an unregenerated heart. Speak truth to them. Speak the gospel to them. That Jesus, you came to this earth, and you died for our sins, because apart from that, we would be ter- eternally separated from you, the God of love and life, because of our sin. Jesus, you took my sin on yourself. You took the punishment that I deserved for my sin on yourself. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one is turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. Jesus, thank you that you took my sins and my punishment on yourself. If there's any here this morning, God, that has yet to believe in you, surrender their heart to you, to say, Jesus, I endeavor to follow after you and turn my heart from my wicked past, lost in sin. Jesus, right now, come and rescue me. I am lost and desperately in need of rescuing. Save me, God. All those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the washing away of our sins. Thank you that in Christ we have new life. Thank you, Jesus, that we have this relationship with you that takes us past the menial junk of this life that can trip us up, the discouragements that can get us down. And you are above all of that. And you invite us to this level of relationship with you, of your perspective. That we'll be able to find hope in you, encouragement in you. And so I speak encouragement to all of those who have grown weary. Remove this weariness from us. Let it just slough off of us in Jesus' name. Weariness sloughed off in Jesus' name. Gone. Weariness at its root plucked up and cast into the deepest ocean. Weariness completely supplanted by faith in God. And this morning, God, as we connect with you, as we start walking in your light, that, God, you would draw us, win us. As you draw us, God, that we would fall in love with you again and again and again. And that we would stop looking at these high waves that are crashing in around us. Wondering when, if ever, it's going to stop. Because your grace is enough for me today. It truly is, God. It truly is. We love you, Lord. Forgive us for this weariness, taking our eyes off of you, perhaps even accusing you. You're the one that's good, not me.